you guys, did you come prepared? Did you come ready? Did you come expecting God to do something? Uh, I, uh, I'm firmly convinced, guys, I'm firmly convinced that people pray for revival, and what they don't understand is revival's happening. The question is, are you awake enough to see it? Are you aware of what God's doing, or are you coming to church expecting God to spoon-feed you and you didn't prepare your heart at all? Like, if you didn't prepare your heart to be here, then what do you expect to get out of it? Just, I'll leave you with that. Um, We are in this really cool part of the story of Genesis. We kind of tried to tie down Jacob a little bit. He's not dead yet, so he's going to keep coming back in the story, but... Kind of, he's struggling with his identity and who he is and what he was made for, and coming to terms with the fact that he is he is what God says he is. He's not what the world says he is. He's not what his own heart says he is. He's what God says he is, and that's an important message for us to learn. Today, we are going to look at one of the weirdest passages in the Bible, in my opinion. Um, and so, to set this up, what happens is Jacob has two wives. Rachel, whom he loves, and Leah, whom he does not love. He had two wives and two handmaids. Leah is shooting out kids like there's no tomorrow, and Rachel can't have babies. And so this creates a little bit of resentment and tension, and so Leah has Reuben and Judah and Asher and Issachar and Ephraim and all these other boys. And Rachel is getting more and more and more jealous. So finally, Rachel has a son and Jacob names him Joseph. And Joseph is special to Jacob because he is the oldest boy of the wife that he loves. But the problem is he's not the oldest boy in their family. And that matters because of the role of the firstborn, the Behor. Who's the one that's going to take over the legacy of their family when Jacob's gone? And Jacob tries to make Joseph the one who's responsible for taking over the legacy, which makes Reuben and Judah and Asher and Issachar and Ephraim and all the other boys really, really upset. Because Reuben is the one that should be the firstborn. And so Joseph gives, gets a coat of many colors from Jacob that distinguishes him as the behor. And there's all kinds of problems. Now, to make matters worse, Joseph, when he's 17 years old, has a dream. And in the dream, he is, uh, his brothers are these bundles of wheat, and the bundles of wheat are bowing down to him. So he goes and tells his brothers, guess what, guys, who love me so much already? I had a dream, and in the dream, you were bowing down to me. Now, have you ever seen the movie The Avengers? Remember the scene when Hulk and Thor are fighting, and somebody snaps them back to their senses, and they're standing side by side, and Hulk goes, and since Thor flying, that is what his older brothers do to him. Like, you know, if you've had a brother, you know that's the kind of relationship they had with him. They, they don't like him. <clears throat> You're going to bow down to me. Really? <clears throat> well, then he has another dream, and this is all important to the context. He, then he has another dream, and in the second dream, his brothers are bowing down to him, but also his mom and dad. 
So he tells his family the dream, and his dad says, Jacob says, you don't mean to say that I'm going to bow down to you, do you? Like, it's one thing your brothers, but me? Now, the reason why that matters to Joseph is because the next story is Jacob sending him out to be with his brothers. And there's going to be all kinds of problems there. Who sends him out? This is important. Jacob sends him out, and from Joseph's perspective, this happens right after he's told his dad he's going to bow down and worship him. So as far as Joseph knows, dad is in on this. So you need to understand this week and next week with that backdrop. Now let's pick up the story in Genesis 37. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, because that's where you go to hang out. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer. So what are they so frustrated with? The dreams. You're going to bow down to me. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Now, why does Reuben do this? Because even if he's not given the title of firstborn, Reuben is the one responsible for acting in conjunction with the family's values. He's the one that's required to do what dad would want him to do even when he doesn't want to do it. He's the one responsible for legacy. And so Reuben steps in and says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Let's, let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So the plan for Reuben was, we're going to throw him in the cistern, and then after the boys are gone, I'm going to come back and get him, and I'll return him home. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, the technicolor dream coat, if you will, And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat their meal. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now, if you're taking notes, you should probably underline that. A caravan of Ishmaelites. Because this is going to get weird here in a second. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him, because that's a better option. To the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, what? Who? Underline that. Who are these people? His brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. Now, this sounds very dramatic, and, and we've talked about this before, but it sounds very dramatic. He tore his clothes like he was like, ah! ripping his, no, that's not how it is. He, Cloth is way too valuable. And besides, if he ripped his clothes, how's he going to mourn the next time? Like if he ripped them clear off. They probably only ripped it about an inch. 
Just a sign of mourning at the collar. And so it's more like, <gasps> like that's it. That's it. I'm so torn up. <laughs> Sounds so dramatic, but it really, he tore his clothes. <laughs> he went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? And then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. Now, who was responsible for selling Joseph? Judah came up with the plan. This is important. Judah came up with the plan. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. Now, literally in the Hebrew, what it says is, they brought the robe to Jacob and said, do you recognize this? Didn't tell him what had happened. Didn't lie. They didn't lie. They didn't, they didn't lie. But... They objectified Joseph to their own ends. They used him. They dehumanized him. They made him an object to get what they wanted. And so Jacob is left to draw his own conclusion about what happened. He recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on put on sackcloth and mourned his, for his son many days, and all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, to, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar. What, what happened to the Ishmaelites? One of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, I want to set this stage. What's happening here is Joseph's brothers don't like him. And so what they've done in order to justify their own anger, what they've done is they've dehumanized him. They've made him an object. The reality is when you're angry at someone, you have to justify why it's okay. And in order to do that, you have to dehumanize them. Because if this is a real person with real feelings and a real story and a real background and a real understanding of the world, it's really hard for me not to engage a conversation to resolution. But when they're an object or a problem, it's easy to dissociate, shove them to the side. They have objectified Joseph. Can God's people ever get away with dehumanizing others? Like, this is the antithesis of what it means to live in the kingdom. And so, we got to figure out how to solve that in this story. But before we get there, I want to talk about this Midianite, Ishmaelite, Vegemite situation. Let's go back and read Genesis 37, 28. So, when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites. What? Does that make any sense? So there's volumes written about this, volumes. One guy tried to resolve it by saying, well, the Midianites and the Ishmaelites are essentially the same people. So that's one option. Another option is uh, they sold him to the Ishmaelites, the Ishmaelites sold him to the Midianites, and the Midianites sold him in Egypt. It's another option. 
There's all, kinds of, there's all kinds of things going on here. What's interesting is if you carefully read, um, this isn't so much about, and this is where the rabbis love to play a little bit, so I'm not going to explore it. I'm just going to leave it with you. You can do your own study. It's not so much about who they sold them to, but what they sold them for. I'll give you that one to study this week. So this, there's this mess about this. Now, there's a lot of ways to resolve that, but I'm going to let you go digging this week. Let's see how you do. Let's see how you do. And for those of you that are like, I'm going to email him and tell him I'm angry because he didn't resolve it. Don't. Don't. All right. Now, he gets sold in Egypt to Potiphar to be a slave in his house. So what should be the next story in the Scripture? Joseph as a slave in Potiphar's house, right? That should be the next story. And it is, except for this really bizarre story. I mean, there are no moral giants in this one. No moral if This is one of those where you go, how could God even be in the midst of these people? This is a mess. So I want to pick up the story here, and I want you to see this. It's in the Bible, so you can't get mad at me for saying the things I'm about to say. I warned you. Let's read. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. And there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. I don't know that that whole thing needed to be spelled out. He could have just said, she's pregnant. We would have known all the rest. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. This is the third frog of the Budweiser commercials, right? Remember? Ur. This is who he was. She kissed him and he became a prince. It's amazing. And that's how babies are made. <sighs> Kiss a frog, it becomes a prince. She, conce- <laughs> she conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife to fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law. Now this is, we'd look at this today and go, gross, but it's actually cultural custom. If your brother dies without having an offspring, an heir, you sleep with your brother's wife in his, we would do this today in vitro, but they didn't quite have that technology then. So you do this and have children with her, but they're your brother's children, they're not your children. So she has the obligation of raising them and caring for them, but this is a way to carry on your brother's family line. It's an act of love, which we don't understand that, but different culture, different time. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Now, by the way, in the religious world, the whole conversation about contraception, should you use birth control or not, 
is relegated to this verse and this verse alone. This verse is not about birth control. That's not what's going on here. It's not the conversation we should be having with this verse. This is about something much, much deeper. This is about objectifying. If he's not going to have children with her and he knows it, why is he sleeping with her to begin with? He's using her for his own ends. And guess what she gets to say about it? Nothing. Which is kind of a jerk move. He's using her. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. Like Judah's thinking, she's bad luck. I'm going to send her away to protect my son. I'm going to send her away. Now this isn't, there's no conversation in Judah's mind about how do I care for her? She's married two of my boys. How do I care for her? How do I protect her? How do I provide for her? No, nope, get out. Get out. I didn't want you to be in my house. You're bad luck. Why is he able to do that? Because he's dehumanizing her. She's an object. She's a problem to solve. She's an issue that must be remedied. She's not a human to him. How are God's people ever going to be known as those who restore humanity to those that have had it been taken away? So Tamar went to live with her in her father's household. And after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, by the way, it's been a long time, so Shelah, the son that was too young to marry, he's gotten older. Guess what? He's old enough to marry now. And guess where Tamar is? Still at her father's house. Judah has not lived up to his end of the deal. When Judah recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adulamite went with him. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, she saw that though Selah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. Again, no moral giants in this story. Like, really? Really? You're gonna... And she's not just a prostitute. She's a shrine prostitute, which means that she's a temple prostitute to a pagan god. What the heck, Judah? What are you doing? And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat. Because, you know, a goat. From my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. Okay, now let me talk to you about the seal. The seal is sometimes on a ring and it's sometimes on a thing that you wear on your waistband that's attached to a cord. What it is is most people don't know how to write in this culture. They don't, they don't know how. And so in order to sign legal documents, you have a seal that has, 
kind of like a family crest, nothing that elaborate, but it's a mark on it that symbolizes your family. And so when you do business in the name of the family, they drip wax on the document and then you press your seal into it and it has your family's mark. This way we know it's legally binding for your whole family. So that's what this is. By the way, the seal is the symbol of your family's honor, power, prestige. It's like if you lose that, your whole family gets shamed. And he just gives it up because he wants to sleep with a shrine prostitute. Like, what? So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. And after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. And he asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her because the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, well, let her keep what she has or we'll become a laughingstock. Once again, I'm going to leverage this situation to protect myself. If there was ever a situation full of self-deception, this is it. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. I did my part. Hey, I did my part. She wasn't there. It's not my fault. I did my part. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Because she's guilty of prostitution. Now, we won't talk about what he did. That's not part of the conversation. But she's guilty, and she made the family look bad. And consequently, he has to save face. And so how does he save face? Make her pay. Because if you're going to do the wrong thing, you should do it in a way that you don't get caught. That makes it somehow better. And so once again, Judah dehumanizes Tamar. He objectifies her to use her to protect his own reputation. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and staff these are. <laughs> Literally, in the Hebrew, she says, do you recognize these? The same phrase Judah used to try to convince his dad that Joseph was no longer in the picture. And all of a sudden, Judah gets it. It's like a massive shift in his, in his whole life. It's a massive shift. Look at the next verse. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. All of a sudden, Judah, like the whole world upends for him. He's like, wait a minute. 
This has all been wrong. I've been doing this all wrong. I've been trying to protect myself and work my angles, but the problem is there's a whole lot of people that are paying the price for that. There's a lot of people that are paying the price for my own selfishness, for my own ego, for my own reputation. There's a lot of people who are paying the price for me to continually try to look good. By the way, that's always true. If your primary objective in your life is to make sure that you look good, the people around you will pay a price in order for that to happen. They always will. And so the question that we have to wrestle with, like Judah here, is do we value people enough to let ourselves look bad or do we place them in the object category, the dehumanized category, so that we can protect our own reputation? How do we reconcile this? What I love about Judah here is publicly he says we're going to burn her at the stake. She confesses to him in private. Like there's no big fanfare. She's just like, send this back to him. So the messenger, just him and Judah, and Judah, he could have disregarded this. He could have. He could have just said, you know what? Nobody knows that she's doing, nobody knows that it's my baby killer. And it seems like in this story that that's exactly the way that Judah should have acted. Like that would have been consistent with what he's done so far. He, he pretended that his own brother was dead. But he doesn't. And it's this phrase, do you recognize this? That throws him back to, I've been living my life this way, and it has not gone well for the people around me. My dad still weeps years later. I got to do something different. By the way, you're going to know this in the next couple of weeks, but Judah, Judah is the one, when Joseph gets reunited with his brothers, Judah is the one that completely turns the table on how Joseph is responding to his brothers. If you read the story, see, the problem is we read it knowing the end of the story. But if you read the story not knowing where it's headed, you look at Joseph and go, he doesn't look like he has any intent of reuniting with his brothers until Judah steps close to him and becomes vulnerable and transparent with him and says, look, my dad's already lost one son and it's tore him up from that day until this day. He can't lose another one. It'll kill him. And all of a sudden, Joseph realizes, oh, dad wasn't in on it. And it changes everything. It changes everything when Judah stops trying to protect himself and objectifying other people, and he just gets real and transparent and vulnerable about his own mistakes. All of a sudden, the whole world opens up to their family being reconciled. Maybe, for those of us that are sitting in broken families, Part of the key is that we're willing to look bad so that truth can get on the table. There are so many people 
that try to live a lie. They're, they're living a facade. It's, a, it's, a, it's dishonest. And the reality is you can't fix a lie. And they're trying to understand why living a facade isn't working. Because it's a lie. That's why it's not working. It's a lie. You can't fix a lie. You got to stop trying to leverage people to protect your own reputation and live in the truth. Because Jesus says it's the truth that'll set you free. Nothing else will. Now let's read on. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her room. She was giving birth, and one of them put, his hand, put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. Why? Because if they're both boys, only one can be the behor. So she wants to protect that. we got to know which one came out first. Which here's the deal. I've watched my wife give birth three times. This has got to be crazy. I don't know how... The, the gymnastics worked in there, but unreal. So, uh, but this one came out first, but when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, this, so this is how you have broken out. And, she, and his, he was named Prats, is the Hebrew word. It's the modern Hebrew word for Dynamite. She named him Exploder. <laughs> True. True. For obvious reasons. <laughs> then his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out and he was named Zerah. Listen, I, every time I read this story or tell this story, I am like, there is a new wrinkle of messed up in this story. There is a new layer of this m corruption, moral bankruptcy. You pick the word, like, it's a mess. And yet, these characters, Judah, Tamar, Perez, they're in the lineage of Jesus. No Tamar, no Jesus. And that gives me hope. Because if God can redeem a jacked up story like that, I got hope. He can redeem mine too. And here's the deal. It all begins when people stop objectifying other people, using them for their own gain, and they start telling the truth about where they're at. Confession is a powerful spiritual discipline. It's transformative to verbalize the truth of the mess that not only am I in it, but I've created it. I've created the mess. And I'm so tired of trying to juggle the world in a way that tries to mask the fact that I made a mess. When we stop with the crazy and just get to the point where we say, you know what? I blew it. This is the foundation of change. And it's the foundation of freedom in your life.
So what we're going to do today as we move towards the Lord's table is we're not going to do implications. I just want to do a time of confession. And don't worry, I'm not going to get you to stand up and spit it out. But if you are uh, serving communion this morning, I want you to go back and go ahead and grab that. If you're new with us this morning, we have an open table. And what that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold the elements till the end. And then we'll take them all together. I want to walk through setting up this confession piece. One of the things that we do as people, that we have a tendency to do, is we want to justify why it's okay for us to be hurt, wounded, mad, um, angry at somebody else. They, you know, they wronged me and I have the right to be offended. We sit on a hilltop like Jonah. If you remember the story of Jonah and the big fish, he sits on the hilltop at the end of the book and God says, do you have the right to be mad at me? And Jonah's like, yeah, I do. Dun, 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 dun. It's all right. Just go get another tray, brother. We often find ourselves in this position of wanting to have the right, wanting to be justified in our anger. And the way that we're able to do that is that we blame other people for why we're mad. I want to give you a cold, hard reality, a truth. No one, hear me, no one is responsible for how you feel except for you. No one else is responsible for how you feel. But they did, yep. But she said, yep. But he acted like, yep. Yes, 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 yes. And you're the only one that has the power to do anything with it in your life. Nobody else is responsible for that, only you. And you have a choice every day. Now, I'm not saying the choice is easy, but you have a choice to begin the process of living in the truth. And by the way, it's okay to be hurt. It's okay to be wounded. It's okay to be angry. It's okay. Because people do objectify us. But if we don't get real about how to deal with it, we're only going to return the favor to other people. And we'll never be able to be free. I, I hear, I, have lots, I do lots of marriage counseling. I love it. I love it. I love God has made me for those kinds of hard conversations. I had a guy call me yesterday. He doesn't even live in this area. And he blew up his marriage. He's like, I don't know what to do. I said, well, you've got to be honest about what you did but she will leave me. She won't talk to me. Yep. Do you want her to leave the truth or live with the lie? 
Like sometimes that's the choice we got. But we're never going to be able to move forward and heal and become something better if we continue to put on a facade about who we are. Because if I'm not going to be real about me, I can't be real about you. Because i got to justify why it's okay for me to keep you out here. And so maybe the place for us to begin is with the person who gave us our wedding ring. Maybe we got to get real there first. Maybe it's with our kids. See, here's the deal. When, when we offend somebody, we have a tendency, number one, to deny it. Then we minimize it. Once, it, once it's like there's no, there's no denying it, then you minimize it. Ah, oh, it really wasn't as big a deal as you thought it was. And then when we can't minimize it, we get mad about it and try to get big and regain control because we got to keep up the facade, right? So we, we deny it, and then we minimize it, and then we get mad about it. So last night, my daughter, my 20-year-old daughter, said we were having a conversation, and it was a random conversation. It wasn't like she was out to get me or anything like that. We were just having this conversation, and she told me something that I had said to her years ago. I don't even remember saying it. And I, I was like, okay, what do I do with this? I don't remember saying it. So I could deny it. Or I could minimize it. Or I could get really mad about it. But I can't do that when I'm preaching a sermon the next day on confession. Oh, the Lord's timing in my life. So all I could say is, I should not have said that to you. Now here's the deal. That helps me heal. But it also helps her heal too. And you have to know that. Because when I live in the truth, when I confess my failures and mistakes, when I own them and try to do better, it's not just me who gets healed. It's the ripple effect of the community that it affects. And that's so critical. It's so critical. Listen, stop carrying the burden of having to have it all together. You were never meant to have it figured out. You were meant to be a part of a community that would see you through the crummy times. So as we think about confession this morning, I would just lead you into a couple of questions and then we'll have a minute of silence where you can talk with the Lord. Is there something that you need to confess out loud to your spouse, to your kids, to your coworkers? Do you need to have the courage to be able to move on past something that someone else has done to you? Maybe even something that you've never said out loud. I was beaten. I was molested. I was wounded this way. I was whatever, whatever it is. You never told anybody. Maybe it's time to confess it. 
Not to make you look like you don't have it all together, but to set you free. Let's take a minute and talk with the Lord. If there's something you need to confess to him, confess it. If there's something walking out of here today that you need to confess to somebody, then you need to do that too. Let's take a minute and talk with the Lord quietly. Lord Jesus, thank you that you invite us into the truth. Give us the courage to live in it. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood just shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, this communion time at one level represents how well you understand the pain of suffering at the hands of others. And so God, I pray that you would give us the courage to weather it in the same way that you did. Use your spirit to speak to our hearts powerfully and help us to live in the truth. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.